Let us read together uh, the conclusion to Hebrews chapter 11, and disagreeing as most do with uh, the chapter heading uh, division, I find uh, the conclusion of this great summary of faith to end in chapter 12, verse 3. Some say chapter 12, verse 2, but I don't think anyone has any clue why chapter 11 ends in verse 40 and doesn't go on a couple of verses. So really, if we see chapter 11 as the great discussion of faith, let us see that, uh, that going through chapter 12, verse 3, and then being concluded and taking up a new subject. For, uh, or by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fires, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the great cloud of witnesses of which we have considered here for so many sermons. We, we, we love the way uh, it just ends with this great uh, flourish, and we are excited to see uh, what it is that we might see from the text. And so open it up to us from your word and give us the kind of faith which you are commending to us here, and give us faith even now as we listen so that we might have greater faith still. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close out our study on faith, which, as I say, takes us a little bit beyond chapter 11, a more natural division would be chapter 12, verse 3, we come to the conclusion, we find a hurried pace that was not present before. Suddenly, for all his speed in the first half, his speed greatly increases Time would fail me if I tried to tell of all the great heroes of faith, he says in verse 32. The verses which are before us read like a great summary, with only brief mention of this or that figure of the Old Testament, and sometimes to entire groups of people. You can usually, uh, and perhaps always, I, I didn't actually take the time to see, uh, an Old Testament illusion standing behind each mention of faith. And that in itself would, uh, I think, provide a very interesting and edifying study. But that is not our interest, nor was it the interest of our author. Again, this is a great summary. 
and he's extracting great principles which we are able to see from the great uh, summary. His interest is that we would see the tendency of faith. That is the kinds of things that faith produces in the lives of the saints. These pilgrims who, who looked for the city which is to come but who did not find it in this world. But as we find ourselves here at uh, the, the conclusion of this study on faith, I want to begin by making two observations, which I think are now easier to do at the, at the end than they were to do at the beginning. And the first observation that I would make is to offer a kind of general definition, which as I say, I think is a little bit clearer now at the end than it was at the beginning. We now have a sense of all that he has to say. Now, the first thing I would say about this is that faith is an exertion of the soul, which I think stands out strongest here at the end. Uh, in describing what faith is, we've seen so many things, but this is something which stands out particularly strongly when we begin in verse 30, and especially when we come to verse 32, the kinds of things that they were doing and accomplishing by their faith. They were exerting something and accomplishing something. Faith is an active principle by which the believer lives and does great things. He is given access to a power greater than his own, and often in very surprising ways. If you remember uh, the definition of faith which I gave in an earlier sermon by Al Martin, I think you'll see this. Now he's speaking of the first exercise of faith, but we ought to see faith is always something daily which is exercised by the believer. His definition is Faith, saving faith is the desperate thrust of a dying soul into the arms of a, of a faithful Savior. The desperate thrust of a dying soul. It's a very active description of faith. And that's what you find in Hebrews chapter 11. Again, especially in this great summary at the end. Or if you think simply, again, describing the Christian life at the outset, but something which is maintained throughout Jesus, uh, the simple words which Jesus utters to those who would follow him, he says, come and follow me. Come unto me and I will give you rest. He is describing an action or an activity that we would engage in. The activity of coming unto him. Or the necessity which faith meets. Namely, a coming unto Jesus for salvation. If you stand at a distance, you'll never find it. You have to come. Or to use the definition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we've considered as well, speaking of saving faith as that which receives, rests, and accepts Jesus Christ as our salvation, is describing three activities. Receiving, resting, accepting. And each of these things as activities, I might add, are done so actively as an, exer as an exertion of the whole soul and the entire man. From this we can say that faith seeks not small things, but great things from God. I think we read that in Psalm 77. In fact, you are a great God. If you look at what is being said here in chapter 11 in this great summary, you'll see it as well. It's not a catalog of meager things, but of amazing things that were accomplished through the centuries by those who had faith. Even though in themselves, you might say, they were utterly ordinary people. And think especially of what the believer comes to possess in Christ. And it will be clearer still. Not something small, but something wonderful, something grand. Even salvation itself and eternal life. And as faith uh, seeks great things from God and finds them in Christ, we see 
that faith is an inward principle which is ever being worked out in the believer as he works out his salvation with fear and trembling. As I said, faith is not just the first activity, so we come unto Jesus, but it is the constant activity and exercise of the soul of the believer, at least ideally. And yet, at the same time, uh, speaking of faith like this is that which we are working out constantly, constantly seeking to exercise. We also find that it is the constant work of the devil to oppose faith and whoever lives to stifle the work of faith. And so it is in this context that we understand the constant exhortations found in Hebrews and in Scripture to believe, as well as the rebukes for a lack of faith. If ever the believer should be found without faith, he ought to be rebuked. Read the Gospels, you'll see this. And I think I'll mention that again later on in the sermon. Faith is a grace which God gives, but it is the duty of the believer to work it out and to bring it, as with all graces, into a lively and constant exercise. Again, there is never a time in which it is excusable for the believer not to have faith. But let me say this one more thing. As an inward principle, it looks to that, it ever looks to that, which lies outside of itself and even outside of the world itself. Faith is especially concerned to contemplate divine things, especially uh, those things which are revealed in God's word. That is ever the work of faith. And the believer who does this will not only find that he has faith, but that his faith is increasing as he, as he makes his faith to rest upon the word of God. And by divine things, I mean all the things which concern God himself. All of his attributes, his power, his love, his grace, and so forth. His method and plan of salvation is revealed, especially in the New Testament. And then, as is the emphasis in Hebrews chapter 11, his divine life and the glories and the joys of heaven itself. Let me give you the first part of a quote from John Owen in his book, Spiritual Mindedness, which I'm going to work out throughout the sermon, which I found very helpful in uh, to me, in, in understanding and expounding this text. He says, Invisible and eternal things are the proper objects of faith. He's describing how it is uh, that a believer exercises his faith, how he comes to faith, how he increases his faith. Well, he has to understand what faith is. It is, uh, it is something which looks to that which is invisible, which is also what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And Owen makes that his text. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of, not, of things not seen. And so that, we know, is the emphasis of the chapter. Faith looking to that which we cannot see and yet being certain of it. That is the work of faith. And that is the thing the fathers did, even as they dwelt in tents, we've read. They contemplated the glories to come. And this was, for them, the constant work of faith. And the more by faith such things are contemplated, Owen says, the more the reality of them appears to the soul. But in this, Owen notices a difficulty, and I want to notice it as well. And that is the second uh, introductory point to the sermon in our conclusion. And that is the difficulty we find in believing. Faith is, as you know, not an easy work. In fact, uh, I think as we read through chapter 11... We are at once uh, both inspired to have faith and we're daunted by it. We are reminded again, especially here in this great summary, of the difficulty we find in believing. It is not an easy work. And if it, if it, is, uh, if it is not for us a constant work, 
then we will soon find that we have no faith, or at least very small faith. Nothing like we read of here. But again, who of us has not lamented the difficulty we find in believing? And so I want to notice, uh, both in quoting Owen and then several, of, uh, several verses from the text which is before us, certain obstacles to believing. There were four in order that we might be prepared to overcome them better. The first, Owen says, is this, explaining why faith is so contrary to the natural man and is only possible for spiritual persons. In other words, the natural man, the unbeliever, he is incapable of faith, only the believer is, but even he finds it difficult. And for this reason, he says, to meditate on heavenly things, we must meditate on their glory and the glory of God in them. But man's finite mind is overwhelmed by such infinite glories that he has no idea how to begin to think about them. We lack skill and ability to think rightly about invisible things. In other words, the difficulty which Owen is describing and which we surely uh, might have thought of as in, in reading Hebrews chapter 11 or simply in living the Christian life is that it isn't so easy to contemplate by faith things which you cannot see. And yet those are the very things which we are called to contemplate and to make our faith to rest in. Still less, uh, not only to believe, but to be assured of their existence. And yet that is exactly what faith is. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, not think, uh, of, of things not seen. A further obstacle, as we see in this passage, is suffering. One of the things that you can count on, and that I'm sure that you know by now, is that faith will bring a man into difficulty. It will bring him into new difficulties which he didn't know before he had faith. There is no man who ever had faith, and especially great faith, who has not suffered for it. And that's one of the great points here of the text before us. True faith is always costly. Read the Gospels. Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to count the cost. Do not think that the Christian life will be easy. I want you to know that it will be hard, far harder than the, the life which you were living before. As I say, this is one of the great points here. If you look at verses uh, 35 through 38, he's saying, in essence, by faith, they suffered great, grievous and great things. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial and, of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in, in dens and caves of the earth. Look how they suffered, he said. Look at the difficulties faith brought them into. Think equally of Moses. We read in verse 25. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Look how much he suffered for his faith. How easy his life might have been if he had no faith. The path of faith, beloved, is one of suffering. It is one of trial. It is one of difficulty, not one of ease and pleasure and comfort. Suffering, perhaps not uh, the fate of, of some of these but suffering at least the reproaches of this world. Do you remember just before he gave his great survey of faith in chapter 11, he is speaking at the end of chapter 10 to them to remember all that they had suffered for Christ and to go on just a little bit further. And then here reminding us of how it is that faith always brings us into difficulties. 
How it is that the world will always hate the believer, if only because the world doesn't understand the believer. And the world always hates that which it doesn't understand, and that which refuses to be conformed to its spirit. And so it is rightly said here, of whom the world was not worthy, those who have faith will suffer for it at the hands of the world. Think of the martyrs especially, how they suffered. But think also of yourself. Who has ever said that his life was easier now that he was a Christian? That is not the honest testimony of any real believer. I never believe anyone who says this. The plain testimony of every saint is that innumerable difficulties enter into his life once he becomes a believer. And even beyond that, what he discovers to his surprise is that the more faith he has, the more difficulties he encounters. The more he finds that the world uh, in which he lives and the spiritual forces against which he contends are against him. He becomes con uh, a subject rather, to constant spiritual warfare. Not just the outward animosity of the world, but even as we read here, the temptations included in the list. They were tempted. They found the more faith they had, the more Satan was there to trouble them. And what I want to notice here about suffering is the way that it stifles faith. Yes, as we read here, it becomes a great opportunity to exercise faith. It becomes the context in which faith is refined and perfected. But let us also be honest that suffering, as we find in exercising faith, we are met, is often a stone upon which we stumble. Even the best saint and the best believer is prone to falter and to stumble on this stone. Another difficulty which we find here is sin. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, we, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, or uh, according to other translations, entangles us. I think I can say that this is the greatest obstacle and the greatest difficulty, and I think you would agree with me. Far worse even than suffering. There is nothing in the Christian life which so robs the believer of his faith and which ensnares and entangles his feet as he tries to run this race with endurance and patience, exercising his faith, than sin. It's the thing that keeps us from running. How easily sin ensnares the believer, he says, and steals his faith. The problem with sin, you know, is it's the exact opposite principle of faith. It brings us too much into this world. And it takes the believer off his heavenly pursuit. We think here of Moses again when it's said of him that he chose rather to suffer the reproaches of Christ and to suffer the afflictions of the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of Pharaoh's house. If he had, we know that his life might have been easier. But the thing that would have been missing was not so much faith, but the blessings which faith brought into his life, spiritual blessings. Even though, as we know and as we've seen in Exodus, and as we'll keep on seeing outwardly his life, was not a very good one, was it? This is the decision every one of us has to make. What will it be? Will we go the way of temptation and sin, or the way which leads unto life? The first step of every believer, as you know, is a turning from sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus says. It is a step of repentance. It is a departure from the old ways and an embarking out on the new ways which are in Christ. 
And that is the path which, which he must ever maintain if ever he wishes to get to the heavenly Jerusalem. But as he goes, if you think of what he's describing here in chapter 1, verse 12, and of your own experience, as he goes and departs from sin, he finds that sin bothers him still. And that no matter how fast he runs, it clings to him, tripping up his feet. Sin is always there to trouble the Christian, isn't it? What is he to do? Well, the exhortation is plain, isn't it? He must ever lay it aside. He must ever set his face against it as a mortal foe and turn ever from sin unto God. He must discover, as Luther said in the first thesis, thesis of the 95 Theses, that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Again, as we think of the life of faith, it isn't our first setting out, but it is our going on that is being described here. And as we go on, we must ever turn from sin as sin stands there to rob not only our joy, but our faith. But there's another difficulty, and that is that of plain weariness and discouragement, which he also speaks of in chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Do you understand that he's saying plainly and pastorally that he understands that weariness is prone to set in, that even the best believer is prone to become discouraged at times? It's simply unavoidable. The longer you run this race, the longer you live the Christian life, the longer you encounter all of the struggles and the difficulties, and even with Christ, the hostility from sinners. And yes, that includes hostility from the saints themselves, who are sinners too. The more you will find that you are becoming weary and you are becoming discouraged. There's no avoiding it. Who hasn't become weary and discouraged? And so let us be honest that even the best saints are prone to us. Let us honestly realize that we are ourselves bound to face it, even as we set out to run the race with endurance. And let us realize the tendency of weariness and discouragement is to weigh us down and to rob us of faith. And so be careful, he is saying. But being aware of the dangers, let us now consider in the third place the ways to increase faith. And here I would go on with Owen's quote. He says, very simply, the way to learn is to get started. Now, if you remember what he said, let me read the quote again. He says, man's finite mind is so overwhelmed by infinite glories that he has no idea how to begin to think about them. That's the difficulty we find. We're not sure how to even start it, yet he says, I don't think he's trying to be funny. He says, the way to learn is to get started. The greatest mistake we can ever make, beloved, is to think of the difficulties which I've just described and of which we are also aware as we seek to live the Christian life. To let them so stand in the way that we conceive of faith not simply as something that is difficult, but as something that is too difficult or impossible. It is possible, you know, to make the obstacles uh, which we face insurmountable in our minds when they really aren't. And none of the obstacles or difficulty which I've described are impossible obstacles to overcome. Not a single one of them. And so we know that faith is a difficult work. But it isn't so difficult that we can't do it. And it isn't as difficult as many of us make it out to be. And so Owen is saying, if we never get started, we may never make any progress at all. We may have a little faith, but we'll never have great faith. Nothing like we read of in Hebrews chapter 11. One of the things that we have to realize our author is describing to us here, one of the things that will make you want to set out on this path is the tremendous potency of faith. 
to consider, in other words, the tendencies outlined here, the incredible power that is at the disposal of the believer when he has faith. Look at what these men and women did by their faith. Let me read again. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. You see, that's a great summary of the Old Testament, isn't it? And it's really amazing to consider all the great things that they came to experience in their lives, even though, as I said earlier, they were just ordinary people like you and me. And yet, look at what they discovered, the great potency uh, that was present in their lives. But the temptation in this, I, I think we meet another temptation, which we feel in our hearts uh, to say, yes, but those are biblical times when the spirit was moving in such ways that great things could be expected. But that's just a rotten excuse. Do you understand that the whole point here is that we might have a faith like theirs? And that when Jesus says to his disciples, that if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, which is to say is if you just have a very small amount of true faith, you could move this mountain into the sea. He's saying that you can do great things too. And you can expect great things from a great God too, if only you have faith. So often in the Gospels we find him lamenting, where is your faith? Or, oh, you of little faith. It seems whatever they were lacking, whether it was understanding or some other thing, was always due to a lack of faith on their part. But the way to have faith is not what we expect, at least not at first, not until we've become skilled in the Christian life. I think the key phrase in all of what I just read, verses 32 through 34, is this, out of weakness were made strong. This is what explains why so many fail to have true faith and to discover the true potential of the Christian life. It's because they seek out of strength to be strong. That's not the way of faith. That's the way of works. That is not the way which God will bless. The true power and the true potential of the Christian life is only ever realized as we come to see our own weakness is met by divine power. Power made perfect in weakness. That was Paul's testimony. The end of 2 Corinthians. And that was his faith. It was only when God had truly humbled him that he discovered the grace which God supplied was sufficient for him. Faith is not a discovery of human strength, beloved. It is a discovery rather of divine strength. It is a humble reliance upon God and a constant discovery of what he can do. And the weaker we are in ourselves, the more we will see this like Paul. We will become, as stated here and in so many other ways, valiant in battle. We will begin to see great things like these happening in our lives. And for all the trouble the devil brings to us, we find that we're able to overcome him. So the proper work of faith is to learn and to behold and even to exercise the power of God ourselves. And once we see this... Faith won't seem so difficult because God isn't asking us to do anything but to realize what he can do 
even what we cannot. And so it will be the thing we're most eager to do and to possess ourselves. And so as Owen says, the way to learn is to get started. Let me ask you this morning, have you started? Have you set out on this life of faith? Have you begun to learn all the great things that God can do when a man has faith? Well, let me add my own testimony to these. Something that I've discovered in the Christian life through so many years of living. And that is that God will never bless me, nor will he ever move in my life unless I have faith. And there are so many trials which he has brought into my life uh, only as an opportunity for me to exercise my faith. But the amazing thing that I've discovered is that when I have faith, then he does bless. And he often does so in surprising and amazing ways. But let me just tell you again, as I've been telling you, there's great power at the disposal of, uh, of the Christian when he has faith. Power to turn from sin. Power to turn away Satan when he comes. Power in many other ways as well. There is surprising providence you might discover when you begin to have faith and when you begin to look for God to act both in the church and in your life. There is a, a principle which we find in the Gospels, which is surely true today, and that is where there is no faith, there is no power. Uh, we, we read in one of the towns that Jesus could perform no mighty works there because they lacked faith. But in this we meet another danger, and that is that we begin to make a work of faith. In our eagerness to exercise this grace, we make of it a work. In fact, the very way I've been speaking of this reveals the danger. Yes, there is a work of faith. It is, as I said, an activity of the soul or an exertion of the soul. But be careful not to make, a, a, uh, to make of faith a work. Be careful not to make faith a work. We must ever see it as a grace. Something not which man produces, but which is there only by the ministry and the influence of the Holy Spirit. A seed which he implants in the soul. A grace which is ever kept up by the ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. As he from heaven ever drips the oil of grace upon the fire of our faith. You think of the illustration we read in an earlier sermon from Pilgrim's Progress. How is it that the believer keeps on believing to his surprise even as he encounters so many difficulties? Well, he has to think of his great high priest in heaven. That's why Satan can never extinguish the flame. And so we know if we are his, that however little faith we have, Christ will see to it that our faith never truly vanishes. But as it is with all graces, let us also see that it may wax and wane in the soul of the believer. And if he does not tend to his faith and see to it that it is increasing in the ways we have considered then it will lie dormant in the soul. We are called, as I think I said earlier on in the sermon, to a lively and a constant exercise of faith. And anything less than this is worthy of rebuke. Oh, where is your faith? And so the believer ever prays, oh Lord, increase my meager faith. Give me more faith and teach me all the blessings to be found therein, as you taught Abraham, and as you taught Moses, and as you taught David and all these others. And the more you exercise your faith in prayer, the more faith you will have. And in this and in many other ways, you will find your faith is increasing. And so we come to the exhortation as our fourth point, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
He is calling us here, according to my definition, to exert ourselves, to exercise our faith, to see faith as an inward and as an active principle, which is being worked out constantly in the life of the believer. To conceive of the Christian life, not only in its conception, but in its entirety, as a race to be run. The Christian life, he says, is not for lazy souls. There's a kind of determined effort that ought to be found in each of us. A real desire to have faith and to exercise that faith to the very end. And even, he says, to get rid of those things which weigh us down and entangle us along the way. To lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily entangles us. Everything which stands in the way of my faith I need to get rid of. But it must be done, he says, with patience. We do not get where we're going all at once. It's a race to be run. It's the whole of the, life, of the Christian life. Nor do we get there alone. Never once does the author here conceive of the Christian life in isolation. It's always in the company of the saints in the church. And the saints through the ages. And the saints who've passed before us into heaven. We have to consider the great cloud of witnesses. The innumerable hosts who've gone before us in this race. As we seek to run it as well. We have to realize equally that the race he says is set before us. It isn't one of our own devising. We don't go about the Christian life in any way that we may or please. They, along with Jesus, say to us, go this way, the way of faith, the way of salvation. And so we go and we run the race of faith and we keep on going until we get there with them. But I have one last thing to say, and it's the most important thing of all. And it is uh, because of what I'm about to say that I think it would be wrong to end our discussion on faith at the end of chapter 11, but we must go on into chapter 12. And that is to see the chief work of faith as a looking unto Jesus, verse 2, and a considering Jesus, verse 3. Indeed, it would seem strange to have so much talk of faith and of heaven in this of all books, the, brief, the, the book of Hebrews. And to say nothing of Christ. In the race that he ran. And his present heavenly intercession in heaven. In these two verses. Chapter 12 verses 2 and 3. He calls to mind all that he's been saying. And we can think. I won't go through the list. But of many references which he's made along the way. Along these lines. Verses 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And there the discussion of faith. Finds its proper conclusion. Well as I say I would hardly know what to say if he never said this. If chapter 11 never resolved and concluded with this statement. If all we had was the great cloud of witnesses. We know they might help us to run the race, but the saints, the cloud of saints, can never be the proper object of faith. And we know as we look at their lives that all of them had defects in their faith, Rahab, Abraham. If we went through the catalog carefully, we would see this time and again. But as I say, that isn't really our interest. Our interest is simply to know that they had faith and that we ought to have a faith like theirs. And yet, we realize none of them were perfect. None of them were the perfect pattern of faith. But as he concludes here, he's saying that Jesus was. When we consider and look to Jesus, as he's telling us to do, at the conclusion of this great summary, do you realize what he's saying? And do you realize what we will see? I wonder, did it ever occur to you to say, Jesus had faith? 
Well, look at it like this, he's saying. He too had a race to run, an errand to complete, a journey to finish. And it was one which was filled with obstacles and difficulties. When he came into this world, he found nothing but suffering and grief, weariness and sorrow. His greatest grief was found at the cross, and there he was met with shame and pain. In all of this, he met constant hostility from sinners. The world hated him. It despised him because, like these other saints, it was not worthy of him. Worse than that, by far, the wrath of God rested upon him, and his righteous soul recoiled at the power of such wrath. Yet he endured it still. As he remained conscious of the joy set before him, he contemplated not so much what he would suffer, but what he would gain by his sufferings. So he endured to the end, and as a result, we read, he was richly rewarded by God. If ever, beloved, there was a life of faith worth considering and emulating, it was this, the life we read of in the Gospels, the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Above all, when we think of what it is to have faith, we must think of Jesus Consider him as we read him in the Gospels. Look at his life and his outlook, his humble reliance on God. Look at all that he suffered and endured for sinners. And look at the outcome of his life. In all of this, see his faith. A faith which he exercised from the, begin from the beginning to the end. And so he was richly rewarded. And so understand the meaning of this. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. When we look to him, that is what we see. We see faith begun, faith perfected. He runs the race in faith. He completes the race in faith. And that is what we are meant to do as well. But we can also catch another meaning of this phrase, the author and perfecter of our faith. Seeing him as the one who supplies faith in the believer. Which makes him the author in another sense, as one who gives faith. Going into heaven before us, he ever supplies faith to the elect and looks after their faith so that they cannot fall away. So he is also, we read, the perfecter, the finisher of their faith, making certain that they too will share in his glory. In all of this, he is the great object of faith. Faith ever looks to him, it considers him, it is an eye to see him as Dabney's friend once told him. Rest assured, beloved, you will never have faith, and certainly not a faith like this, in any other way than by looking unto him and considering him, not as he seems to us, but as he really is, as we find him in scriptures, as he is presented to us here in Hebrews, and as faith finds him now in heaven. The more faith contemplates him like this, as he really is in his high heavenly priesthood, the more the reality of his priesthood and his present intercession will appear to the soul. So let me finish now the Owen quote, which I've been reading little by little throughout the sermon. He says, a false heaven created by the imaginations of men will soon evaporate when serious thought is given to them. But where invisible things are real, the more they are seriously considered, the more evidence they give of their existence and reality. Imagination creates its own objects. Faith finds them prepared beforehand. Faith will not leave a vague idea of them in the mind, but will give them a spiritual reality in the heart, as Christ himself dwells in our hearts by faith. So faith contemplates heavenly realities. And what faith contemplates most about the invisible world of heaven is the priestly work of intercession that Christ is presently engaged in there in heaven. Faith looks to heaven 
and finds Christ there. And finding Christ there engaged in God's priestly service on our behalf. Our faith is greatly strengthened and enlarged. And with this kind of faith, we will be like those we read of here. Not with a meager faith, but a great faith. With this kind of faith, you will find that great things are happening. As you ever live in the presence of your great high priest, you'll be like Enoch and Noah, men and women who walked with God and who are always conscious of his presence and his power. Of course, you'll find Satan too close at hand, the more faith you have. But I dare say he won't trouble you nearly as much as you might think. For by faith, as you lie in the bosom of the Savior, you will find safety and power, valiant in battle, mighty to overcome, grace to help in time of need. As I close, I would just say, oh, that I might have such faith. And oh, that we together as a church might have such faith. And oh, that we might find it in the church abroad, throughout the land. Can we really lament together as a congregation the low state of spirituality that we find throughout this country when we see how little faith there is? It really isn't so difficult to understand. There's an obvious reason the church is as she is today, and it is simply that she lacks faith. Let us together seek to have faith and to exercise it and to see that faith is our constant and our increasing work. And so I leave you with the exhortation. I meant to say our constant and increasing work and let us never expect anything from God unless we have faith. With that, let me read the exhortation. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is where we find ourselves, in the midst of a race and a great struggle. It is the struggle to have and to maintain and to exercise faith. But you will never get very far. You will never have faith unless you make it rest in Jesus. Amen. And let us come to the table together.